Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but not seeing, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who had made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon the name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but the disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple." But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Leda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. 
And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Leda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would cause us to see all that you have for us in your word today, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you again for standing through another lengthier chapter of Acts. Um, But this is for all of its length, at least an exciting story, at least it is to me. It's one of my uh, fondest memories. I don't know why this story sticks out to me from Sunday school years when they used flannel graph. Anybody remember that to put up on the board? Um, And especially the lowering of the basket. For some reason, I can still see that as a child. Um, This was an exciting story to me. And it is, I think, for Luke as he tells it, because he's he's been slowly introducing us to Saul, telling us a little bit about him. It's as if this crescendo has been building about who this guy was. Uh, Saul was clearly a leader in the persecution of the early church. doesn't use that term, but we see him in Acts 7.58 standing in endorsement of Stephen's death, and he was the one at whom they laid their, their cloaks when they went to stone him. We see him again in, in, in chapter 8 and verse 1 where Luke writes, "...and Saul approved of his execution." And then he introduced the kind of explosion of persecution that takes place immediately after that that would then drive many of these new Christians out of Jerusalem and into a temporary exile. Again, we see in verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church. And now in verse 1 of chapter 9, Luke writes that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's again almost this over-the-top picture, almost animalistic picture of someone who was so consumed. He was ravaging the the church. He was breathing threats and murder. It was as if something had consumed Saul, a rage that was the only motivating force in his life, something that was driving him and pushing him. And remember, Saul thought he was on God's side. He thought he was doing God a favor. He was certain that he was justified in his actions. But he didn't realize that he was actually fulfilling Jesus' words when he spoke in John 16, 2 to his disciples, when he said, anyone who kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. This was Saul. And I think that we would do well to look at our own hearts and ask ourselves, are we consumed by something so emotional, something that, becomes rage inside of us, Um, dare I say we can hardly avoid sin if we do something like that. We have to guard our hearts. I mean, this time Saul was an unbeliever, but rage is something that can grow. It grows out of anger. 
grows out of bitterness. Sometimes it can seem justified, but it often stays on track in the life of the believer. So let's consider our own hearts to not be like Saul, who thought he was on God's side. So Saul requests these letters of extradition from the high priest. He's going to go. He's not satisfied with rooting out the, the Christians in Jerusalem. He now wants to go all the way to Damascus. Damascus is nearly 150 miles away. There were no cars in this day. This was quite a journey to make. But Saul wasn't thinking with logic. He was driven by rage. And he wasn't satisfied to see this happen only in Jerusalem. He wanted to go, and it says, to have them bound, men and women, to take them back and put them in prison. In a later account where Paul is standing before King Agrippa, and we'll get to this eventually in Acts 26, he says, In the excess of my fury against them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. In the excess of my fury, Paul, on the other side of salvation, recognized how consumed he had become. But Saul doesn't get this opportunity. His life and all that he's currently living for is about to come to a crashing halt. The hound of heaven, to use the English poet Francis Thompson's words, was in pursuit of Saul of Tarsus. And the hound of heaven never fails. In the middle of the day, this this particular account doesn't tell us this, but this same story is told again in Acts, which we'll get to a couple of times. And so in the other accounts we see this wasn't at night that this light shone down, but the middle of the day. This is the middle of the day in the Middle East. It's really, really bright already. And now here comes a light bright enough to overpower and seem bright even in the middle of the day. A light from heaven, verse 3, shone around him. And his immediate reaction, of course, is to fall to the ground. I didn't take the time to do a lot of research. I'm not very scientific, but I would be interested in hearing from the more scientific people to talk about the, the the force of light. Uh, the fact that it's not just something that we visually see, but there's energy there. And what was really going on here? We see in the beginning that God made light. And there's something that um, is beyond even our understanding and looking at this account. It had to be very, very intense. And it also makes me wonder if Paul didn't consider this event in his life when he re- wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, "...seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God." For it is, the, it is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is what Paul was experiencing on the road to Damascus. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So he had this external experience. There was also something going on internally in his heart and his mind, a confrontation that was leading him to trust in Christ. And it came first from a voice, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The text doesn't tell us here, but later we'll see this further down, uh, that Saul was actually seeing the resurrected Christ. This was actually a vision that he saw him visibly. In verses 17 and verse 27, both Ananias and Barnabas refer to the fact that Saul saw Christ. And his response is, who are you, Lord? Or who are you, sir? We don't know exactly how the, the, the phrase, how that word translates in both ways, how, how he meant it in his heart. But it's interesting when we look at Saul's reaction to the voice, who are you, Lord? And Ananias' reaction, who said, here I am, Lord. The difference of someone who knows Christ and someone who doesn't. 
And Jesus responds in the next verse, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told all that you are to do. So Saul knows now who he is seeing and hearing, but you have to think of all the questions that must be going through his head. I mean, he thought he was defending God. He thought this Jesus was dead. He thought all of his followers were a bunch of nuts, heretics who had to be rooted out. And now here is Jesus saying, you've been persecuting me. I mean, this changes everything. His traveling companions hear and see something, but not what Saul sees and hears. They didn't see Jesus. They didn't hear his voice discernibly. They heard some kind of sound. They saw some kind of light. It was enough to put them on their, uh, off their feet as well. But they jumped back up, and they stood there, verse 7, speechless. What in the world is happening? And next, they have to lead Saul to Damascus. He's now blind, and he's going to experience three days of this. It's hard not to think of Jesus in the tomb or Jonah in the belly of the whale three days without being able to see. And there's no doubt that this lack of sight allowed Saul to give more attention to what it was happening. And it was humbling. I mean, here was a man with incredible power. He, he kind of had his own army with him of people. He had these letters of extradition from the high priest. He was marching 150 miles to get people, bind them, and take them to prison. And all of a sudden, he's flat in the dirt. And without sight, he had to be led the rest of the way, and he also doesn't eat or drink for the next three days in Damascus. So Jesus brings Saul to his knees. And now he recruits Ananias, who's a believer in Syria. Damascus is in Syria. This is north of Israel. Um, This believer, Ananias, we don't know much about Ananias. This is all we get to, to see of him. We don't know how he came to faith or what he did afterward. But Jesus appears to Ananias and tells him to go find Saul, to lay his hands on him, to restore his sight in verses 11 and 12. And how does Ananias respond? (laughs) But but, but Lord, (laughs) excuse me, um, I've heard of this guy. Not only have I heard what he was doing in Jerusalem, but I've heard what he's come here to do. Verse 13 tells us that Ananias balked. He didn't want to do it. And we can hardly blame him. But Jesus responds to his concerns with a startling announcement of the role that Saul was going to play. In verse 15, Jesus says, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. See, Saul didn't find Jesus. Saul didn't run for the office of apostle to the Gentiles. Saul didn't work his way up the ministry ladder. Saul was arrested, literally in the middle of the day, in the middle of his step, on the way to persecute more Christians, and ultimately persecuting Jesus. Jesus found Saul. The hunter became the hunted. And now he's going to be the tool of Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles, primarily, but also he's going to be a voice to the Jews, his fellow Jews, and even to kings. Not only was Saul now an instrument of Jesus, He was also going to suffer, verse 16 tells us. Now Saul was not going to suffer as some form of punishment or some sense of revenge. He was going to suffer because he was now united to the suffering servant. To be united to Christ is to suffer. Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the one who gave it all up for us. 
and he's promised that we will suffer. The idea that Saul didn't find Jesus, but Jesus found him is something that would become a hallmark of his letters that he would write. Most of the, the New Testament, Paul would later, later write. But Paul doesn't describe Jesus as being in him, but rather that he is in Jesus. That's a language that, that we kind of pick up in modern evangelicalism, that we invite Jesus into our heart. But the, the biblical idea, the biblical concept is really that Jesus brings us into union with him. We are in Christ. Derek Thomas writes, Of all the theological reflection that Paul engaged in, none was more profound than his insistence that believers are in union and communion with Christ. Nowhere is Paul more identifiable than in his insistence that believers have died with Christ, have been buried with Christ, and have been raised with Christ. The little phrase, in Christ, will become a Pauline identity marker. It was here on the Damascus Road that the truth was burned into his soul. For the apostle, Jesus is united to the believer in blessing as well as in suffering. This truth is among the most encouraging in the Bible, that in every trial we face, we may be assured that our Lord Jesus Christ is with us. For as the sufferings of Christ abound for us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.5 So what Ananias finds then is not this animal that Saul was and had been, but a humbled man, confused by physical blindness, uh, perhaps, but especially in his soul, in turmoil because of what he had just seen. His world had been rocked. Everything had changed. And so Ananias then lays his hands on Saul and something like scales fall from his eyes and his sight is restored. I think the physical experience mirrors what happened in Saul's heart. The scales of his heart sight were removed. The scales fell, and he now sees for the first time in all respects. He's now filled with the Spirit, and he's baptized, he eats, and he's strengthened. And now comes the next step of being developed for ministry. Now, I haven't really gone through a lot of the timeline that we've been looking at as we've been moving through Acts. I don't know if here we're in the second or the third uh, decade. Luke doesn't give us the timeline exactly. But we're able to put some things together and realize that some significant amounts of time have passed. This isn't, you know, for for, for us today, we're on Ascension Sunday. So, you know, we think, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Easter happened. And as we've been going through Acts, maybe you think this is the same rate that the story's being told, but the story's moving a lot faster than that. And we're going to look at how Saul's ministry training wasn't overnight. God didn't just save him and then launch him out. We see some immediate ministry experience, but then some training that happens in verses 20 to 31. This is an overview of how Saul was equipped further for ministry. He spends time with the disciples in Damascus a short time, And immediately the text says he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. In a sense, he was given a testimony. Jesus really is the Christ. And you can imagine the confusion that this caused because the Jews knew he was coming and the Christians knew he was coming. The Jews thought he was coming to be on their side and at their cause to arrest these Christians and remove them. The Christians, out of fear, thought he was coming to get them. And now here he is standing in the synagogue saying Jesus is the Messiah. What in the world? No one wanted to believe him. And so it was probably a very simplistic message, even the way that Luke records it, that that he simply proclaimed Jesus. 
But he's transformed from wanting to end Christianity to now wanting to tell everyone the truth. Verse 21 says um, that they, had, um, they, had, they were amazed, they were surprised, um, they were in fear. And uh, then in verse 22, we see that he begins to mature and grow in his faith. His knowledge grew, his assurance of God's love, so that he was, he was confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul's becoming an apologist. He's now, in a sense, making his case for why Jesus is the Messiah. But then in verse 23, he says, Now many days have passed. And this is where we have a sense of a, of a time lapse. Now, what we're going to see, the Jews eventually get fed up with Saul. They plan to kill him so that he has to flee for his life. And that's the, the story of him being let down in the basket uh, from the outer wall. Um, but, but we're going to see him then go to Jerusalem. But there's some times, some things that happen in between that Luke doesn't mention here. In verse 23, he says, many days have passed. But in Galatians, when, when Paul, who's writing Galatians, gives this account, he says in Galatians 1, I went away into Arabia, into the desert, and returned again to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. So this was a number of years that passed, even though Luke records it as... Uh, Many days have passed. It's actually years. Now, the way Jews record time, just like with Jesus being in the tomb or being dead for three days, it was a Friday night, Saturday, and a Sunday. Their understanding of time, that was still three days, even though we might add up the hours and say it wasn't quite three days. The same thing would happen with years. So we don't know if this was a full three years or if this was part of two years and one in between, but it was a considerable amount of time that he went. And there's a lot of uh, details that Scripture doesn't give us about this time. I kind of wonder if this wasn't the time when Paul received a a particular revelation that he alludes to in 2 Corinthians 12. Um, We don't know, but it would fit the timeline, I think, fairly easily that that God was doing some intense discipleship of Saul when he was in the desert. That He was using this time to show him things, to to basically undo the Pharisee say in him, uh, to undo all that he had learned and to begin to help him to see that all that he knew from the Scriptures, that Jesus had been there all along. And God showed him these things. And then when he finishes this preparation, now he's going to send him out into the church. But it's not going to be a smooth role. And we see this, or a smooth opportunity, we see this when he gets to Jerusalem. Particularly, he gets there, and nobody wants to accept him. But Barnabas steps in and helps him. Now, we've already met Barnabas once, and we know that Barnabas' given name is Joseph, but his nickname, so to speak, is Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And here we see Barnabas living up to his nickname. And in other words, he's been given this name because it's his character, it's who he is. This word encouragement, the son of encouragement that they've named him, that word is the same word used for the helper or the comforter when Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The, other, the idea here is that, that that's what Barnabas is doing. He's coming along, he's comforting and helping and assisting Saul. And ultimately, the entire church, because he introduces him to Peter and to James and bridges that gap. And after a time of preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, the Jews in Jerusalem now want to kill him. And so he's on the run again. And he takes off this time to Asia Minor, which is his home, to Tarsus. And we're going to see him appear again. And then look at verse 31. We see this, another one of Luke's transitions that we see throughout the book, where he expands the geography of the church, 
The church is now growing well beyond the city of Jerusalem, well beyond the nearby towns as it had been. It's now growing to the entire area of Judea and Samaria. And notice how he describes the church in verse 31, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You know, in a day and age of church growth techniques and conferences and books and one, two, three step programs, a lot could be learned by coming to this passage of Scripture and seeing how the early church multiplied. It walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We could learn a lot from just that. At the end of the chapter, we see this story of Peter, a couple missionary journeys that he makes. And I just want to mention a few things about those. Um, Peter was, it, it says, as he was going about. So he was going from town to town. He was going to affirm new believers. He was going to spread the gospel and share Christ with unbelievers. And if you remember when we left Philip last week, Philip started out, he was with the, the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he just was in the city of Ashkelon there, the, one of the ancient five Philistine cities over on the coast. If you, if you look at your right hand with your palm down, that, that, that kind of looks like Israel, you know, where your thumb is. That's where Gaza and those ancient five cities just north of there are. And then if you go up to about where your knuckle is, that's where Caesarea was. That's where Philip ended up. And so Philip, God has used him to bring in the gospel. Jerusalem would be the center of your hand. We know he went uh, to the east in Samaria. We know north in, uh, in uh, Syria. We've seen that the gospels reached up there, the Ethiopian eunuch to the south. In other words, Luke is painting this picture that the whole area, the whole geography has been covered with the gospel. This maritime plain, as it's called, of this area that now Peter goes to, and we see one who has been paralyzed for eight years, someone who everyone knew clearly was unable to walk, and the Lord uses Peter to heal him. And then even with Dorcas or Tabitha, someone who's dead, this was a very unusual. We don't see a lot of resurrections during the apostolic age, but here's one. And the Lord uses this to affirm the work of the apostles, to affirm the spread of the gospel, to affirm the new believers that this is the work of Christ. And so as Luke then is painting the picture, spreading out this, covering all this geography, we see he's setting us up for the kind of the last thing to happen uh, in, in the sense of what the Great Commission promised. The Great Commission said, you know, it's going to cover this geography and go to the ends of the earth. And so we see that now on course. But the the Great Commission is also not just for one people group, but it's also for the Gentiles. And so we see this with Cornelius, which we'll look at next week. So in this chapter, we see the gospel in a number of ways. We see it uh, in in a sense of restoration. We see the the, the lame have been made to walk, the dead have have been made to live, have been raised to life. The blind were given sight in in the life of Saul. But let's not be short-sighted about these things. Because it isn't the physical restoration of our bodies in this life that is our real hope. All of these people went on to eventually die. Their bodies continued the aging process even after these healings. Now, the real hope for you and for me is the restoration of our entire person, for, for our every, all of our being, for body and soul, for a, a restoration that will come because we are found in Christ. We are His. 
He is ours. His spirit is within each one who believes. And so that we have a future and a hope that we look forward to. Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 4, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. This is the hope that we have, and this is the hope that we celebrate today in the Lord's table. To be nourished at the table of our Lord, that this is not just a belief, this is not just a religion, this is not just an idea, but our hope is a person. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is the promised one, the Messiah, just as Saul eventually got to see firsthand. Jesus is the Almighty One, the Great High Priest, Emmanuel, God with us, our Redeemer, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty Counselor, the Way, the Truth, and the Life. He's the King of Kings. And just as Saul's eyes were opened, our eyes too have been opened. And so come, let's prepare our hearts now to feast at His table. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray today that as we look at what has happened in the life of the church, how you've saved someone who was so uh, uh, just ravaging your church, who was breathing threats and murder, who was just the ultimate enemy of you, you saved him. You had mercy on him. You brought him to yourself. And you took out that heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh. Lord, what a picture of your love. And so I pray today that if there's anyone here who has never discovered the love that is to be found in Christ and His work on our behalf, that you would move in hearts today. But Lord, I pray for all of us that our hearts would not be cold, that we would not look back at our great salvation as something that happened back in space and time, but that that this message of hope and salvation is for every moment of every day, including right now. And so I pray that you would use not only your word today, but use now this your table to nourish and to feed us spiritually, to build up our confidence in Christ. And it's in his name that I pray.